0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc online.org. Now, here's Pastor Sean. Well, I would say open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We're going to do some introductory issues before we actually get into the book, but I do want you to have it open to Revelation chapter 1, uh, verse 1. There's a lot of different ways you can approach uh, teaching the book of Revelation. And so what I'm going to do is kind of lay forth an overview tonight just to kind of get our bearings straight on how you actually read the book of Revelation, how you actually study it. And so um, historically... There have been three ways that this book has been interpreted at least probably within the past 100, 200 years and how different Christians have tried to um, approach the book of Revelation. And the first way to approach it is what some people would call uh, the idealist approach. This is what I call the liberal view where basically they don't take anything in the book of Revelation literally at all. Um, It's more general principles about the way God operates. And so we're not really supposed to take for, you know, Jesus isn't literally going to come back physically. Um, There's not a literal hell Um, There's not all all these things. It's more, these are just general principles. So I would reject the idealist approach that just says, let's just take the book of Revelation kind of as general principles. It's more of a a non-literal way of of doing that. Another way, which is pretty popular, um, this is kind of the the, the modern popular view within the past maybe 20 years, strictly futurist. Okay, so chapters 1 through 3, are historical. They took place in history. But when you get to chapter four, all the way to the end, that describes a future day towards the end times, right before Jesus comes back. It has nothing that applies to us at all beyond chapter four. Okay. So you look at the rest of the book of Revelation is totally future, which means that it doesn't really apply to us because it hasn't happened yet. So we can just read the first three chapters and then if we're around on the earth, we can read the rest of it and see if it applies to us.
1: God could change his mind and say well, God, God can't.
0: God can change His mind. What? Okay. I don't think God does change His mind when He has His plans. Seventy. So I guess He could. All right. So let's look at number three. Number three is the one that I I, I think probably maybe the best way to understand, this is what we call contemporary historical, okay? So the symbolism in the book of Revelation grows out of events, and obviously John is the writer of the book of Revelation. They grow out of events in John's day that the original, now hear me, this is what you need to hear, okay? I'm going to repeat it multiple times. That the original readers would understand. Most of Revelation deals with events that are occurring now, okay, so these things are happening now, and they have been happening ever since Christ ascended and went back up into heaven. But at the same time, there's also a future element of things that are going to happen during the last days, okay? So it's kind of an already not yet. The book of Revelation is an already not yet. These things are already happening, and they have been happening Just on maybe a smaller scale, but there's a not yet element to where some things in Revelation haven't happened yet and they will happen in the future. So we we read it that way. Okay? Now, another big question How do you read Revelation? Let me just try to start this over again. This has not started. And I think well, maybe it says I don't have a good phone signal here. Yeah, until we get the Wi-Fi fixed, it's going to be really hard to do this because the Wi-Fi is working now. Yeah. Okay, let me try to let me try to get back on Wi-Fi and see. Sorry, I just know some people in the church, especially our some senior adults that are homebound, like to. Is it on the CEFUS extension? Oh, Cephas. Okay. Okay. Okay, I am on now. All right, we'll see if it works. If it doesn't, oh well. The people that have been waiting all month to watch this will just have to be disappointed. All right. I don't know what else to say. All right, so how do you read the book of Revelation? Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit. This is not in your notes, but I'm going to write on the board. This does not look like something. Oh, it is a dry erase marker. Make sure I'm writing. Okay, i want to make sure I don't write with something. This is like a Sharpie. Dry erase marker, okay, everybody? So if I mess this up. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about genre. That's kind of a word we don't use very much, Genre. But the Bible's made up of different genres, okay? So you know this intuitively. Let me just ask you a question. For those of you that still read a physical newspaper or whether you read it on your tablet, do you read the box scores the same way you read the stock market? Okay, you read either one. Do you read the editorials... The same way you would read a feature like the classifieds. No. Why? Because they're different types of literature. Okay? So the Bible has all different types of literature. So when we come to the book of Revelation, it is a, a different animal all on its own. Okay? So, like on Sunday mornings, when we're going through the book of Galatians, it's a letter. It's pretty easy to track. How do you read a letter? You start with. Okay, so as we've gone through the book of Galatians, what have we done? Line by line, verse by verse, it flows, there's logic, there's order, you read from top to bottom, and you read it in a straight line, okay? That's called a linear reading of the Bible, linear. You read it basically in order, okay? The question when you come to the book of Revelation is, do you read it linearly As in, these events happen one after another, after another, after another, and these are all separate events that keep happening in linear fashion? Or are these cyclical events that are actually the same event, just told in a different vantage point over and over again? This is really more the way Revelation is meant to be viewed. Because you can actually end in chapter 6 with the end of the world being destroyed. Okay, because pretty much that's what happens at the end of chapter 6. What Revelation does, because of the type of genre it is, it's meant to be more cyclical or progressive, or what I like to think of is, because I was a film and video major, um, well, we'll get to that in just a moment. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Here's a... Yeah. Yeah, it's genre. Yeah, it's a French word. Yeah, genre, yeah. Or which means type of literature. Yeah, so like in the Bible, you have like narrative, telling a story. Genesis, that's a narrative. You've got letters or epistles. You've got history like Acts. You've got law like Deuteronomy. You've got poetry like the Psalms. Uh, you've got prophetic like Isaiah. Um, and then you've got what's called Apocalyptic. Okay, so here's a sound interpretation. This is something that you need to understand because this is where a lot of interpretation and revelation goes wrong. A sound interpretation must take as its starting point a position that the book was intended for believers in John's day first and age, and it cannot mean something different to us that it meant to them. Does that make sense? So if it meant something to John's audience, it's got to mean the same thing to us. It can't mean something different to us that it meant to them because they were the original recipients of the book. Does that make sense? Okay, that'll make sense as we go along. How did the original hearers, how did the original readers understand this symbolism? Okay, what did it mean to them? All right, now, what was the purpose of the book? What is the purpose of the book of Revelation? Two big things. Number one is to comfort a persecuted church in their struggle against the forces of evil by showing them a majestic view of Christ and His victory. There is a word that shows up over and over in... That's good. In the book of Revelation... And you know this word because it's all over the place in American culture. It's the word... It's the swoosh, okay? It's the word Nike. That is the Greek word for conqueror or overcome or victor. The whole point is that Jesus is the ultimate overcomer. Jesus is the ultimate victor. And we who follow him will overcome okay also i want to challenge you on this there are more scenes of worship than in any other new testament book worship you may not you may think all revelation is a book about the future yes but there are more scenes of worship in it than in any other book and we'll look at that as we go through now let's talk about symbolism in the book of revelation because it is all over the place. We're jumping into a genre. We're jumping into a type of literature that we're not that familiar with. It's a lot of symbolism, okay? So it's called apocalyptic. Now, let me just tell you why it's called apocalyptic, okay? Look at the very first um, word in your Bible, Revelation one. What does your Bible say? The okay, the okay. Well, that's a good word. What's the What's the first? Okay, the that's a definite arc. Okay, the what? The revelation. Okay, the Reve- so it's not the book of revelations. It's the book of revelation. The Greek word for revelation is apocalypsis. That's where we get the word apocalyptic. So when you talk about apocalyptic literature. It's a type of literature that is very symbolic. It's defined by moving pictures. Okay, here's what I want you to think about when you think about the book of Revelation with this cyclical type of telling of a story. Because I was a film and video major, I had to do a lot of study in how camera work was done. Now, you watch a movie and you're not even aware of this, but let me just ask you a question. When you watch a movie, is there just one camera angle for the entire movie? They got it on there, and they just, what happens? You have multiple camera angles, and what are they doing? They're catching the same event, but what are they showing? Different perspectives, different angles. So the book of Revelation is telling the same things, and we'll see repeated scenes, but they're from different camera angles. Does that make sense? So, moving pictures, camera angles very very symbolically. Okay. So, Revelation 1:1. 1, 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. Does anybody have the King James version? Tonight. What does the New King James Version say?
1: It says, it's very similar. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant
0: John. Okay, he sent and signified it. Anybody have, have something else by signify? Or sent or made it known? In the original language, that word made it known in the Greek means to communicate by means of symbols. So from the very beginning, we're told to read Revelation symbolically. So does that mean we don't take Revelation literally? No, it means we take it literally as symbolically. Now, now, let me confuse you. You're looking like, what's going on here? Is there a difference between these two words? Again, I'm writing things that aren't in your notes. Is there a difference between taking something literally and literalistically? I don't know if that's how you spell it. If you take something literally, it means we take it as it happens... We believe it's in God's Word. It's going to happen. But literalistically, now let me give you an example. And we'll look at this later on tonight, maybe. When it says Jesus had hair of white, and then he had flames coming out of his eyes, and he had a sword coming out of his mouth, and his feet of of bronze, and a voice of many waters, do we take that? How would you take that literalistically? It means you draw a picture And all those things would be, literalistically, if you look up at Jesus, he would look like a monster, okay? It's symbolic, okay? It's meant to be taken symbolically, but Jesus literally did approach John. Okay, so who appeared to John on the island of Patmos? Jesus. Did he literally appear? Yes. How did he show up to John. John couldn't quite describe it, so he gave us symbols to try to figure it out. One of the words that shows up a lot in the book of Revelation is the word like, because John doesn't know what else to say. It was like this. It was like that. The best thing I can tell you is it's, it's like something that we've seen on earth, but I can't quite describe it. It was like. So, so a lot of symbolism in the book of Revelation. Yeah, literalistically would be Jesus standing there with the literal sword coming out of his mouth. That would be literalistically versus Jesus was literally there, but the sword coming out of his mouth is more symbolic of him ruling with the power of his word. There's a symbolism behind that sword. Does that that make sense?
1: Yeah, I can't imagine what John was thinking at
0: that point. Yeah, yeah, that's why he fell as a dead man. (laughs) Perhaps
1: the first time he's seen him, probably the first time he's seen him since he died. Yeah. Went, yeah. went back to heaven, yeah. And
0: her the glorified cry, wow. yeah. yeah. Brent? More mo- uh, more modern term being word pictures? Yeah, word pictures. Okay. Word pictures, moving pictures, symbolism, yeah. But here's the big interpretive key, and this is where we are at a disadvantage to John's original audience. This will help you read Revelation very importantly. The Old Testament is the interpretive grid for understanding the symbols. Get that into your brain. It's the Old Testament. It's not modern occurrences like a microchip or a helicopter or atomic bombs or all these things that John's original audience would have no clue what you're talking about. What would John's original audience had known the symbolism? What was rooted in the Old Testament? So there's probably more references to the Old Testament than any other New Testament book. Revelation has more references to the Old Testament. Okay, so you've got to be very, very well versed in the Old Testament in order to understand Revelation. Now, let's talk about date and setting. The date of the book and the setting. John is the last of the living apostles. He's on a penal colony in prison on a rocky island called Patmos, off the coast of modern-day Turkey is when he's writing this, okay? So he's in jail, but he's free to walk around because he's basically like on an Alcatraz-type island out in the middle of the ocean where he can't escape. It was written around 95 or 96 A.D. toward the end of the Roman emperor Domitian's reign. Now, it's the last book written by the last living apostle. Why is Domitian important, the emperor? Domitian, the emperor, had a mandate in the Roman Empire. Here's what Domitian mandated in the Roman Empire. He said, once a year, every citizen of Rome had to go to a pagan temple, take a pinch of incense, dip it on the altar, and publicly confess the emperor as my lord and my god. As a Christian, would you have a problem with that? Okay. So these Christians who John is writing to are living in a world where the emperor is saying, I'm Lord and I'm God and you have to worship me. And ultimately, that's why John's in prison is because he was persecuted for not bowing the knee to the emperor. Okay. Now, we're we're going to come back to these introductory issues, but one of the things that you see in the book of Revelation is, is the role of the devil. The devil does play a pretty heavy role in the book, but the devil attacks the church in four main ways, and we'll see these as we get deeper into the passages, okay? So this is just an overview. One of the ways that the devil attacks the church is through persecution in order to give up and renounce their faith persecution now right now in america i would say 10 years ago we would look and say if i was teaching this class 10 years ago i'd say yeah we're not really dealing with much persecution today the way that things are going in the near future i would say we're in for days of persecution in america it may not come as quickly or it may come really fast. We don't know. But that's one of the ways that the church has to come to grips with um, living in this culture is persecution. So that's one way. One of the issues that the book of Revelation is going to address is persecution. Okay? Another issue, number two, is through materialism and complacency that influences believers to trust in their own resources instead of God's. That's probably more america than maybe like a third world country like North Korea or something. We're tempted with materialism. We're tempted in complacency. Uh, We're just, you know, half-hearted, lukewarm, you know, basically not really doing much with our faith. Number three, through sexual immorality and issues of holiness that influence the church to look just like the culture around them. So persecution, materialism, sexual immorality. And then number four, false doctrines that influence believers to compromise the gospel and believe lies. Are these four things present today? Persecution, materialism, sexual immorality, and false doctrines. They were around in John's day, 80, 95, 96. They're around today. They've always been around. Every culture has to deal with these just in different ways. I think our culture deals with these in a different way because we have something that the... There's one difference between us and the, and the culture John was writing to. What's the big difference? Technology. The access to everything through the internet, through satellite. It's not that those things weren't there. It's just we have greater access to all of that stuff now. It makes it more difficult because I'll, I'll introduce a word to you guys. It's ubiquitous. You guys like, ooh, that's a big word. Let me teach you the teach you Ubiquitous. You use this tomorrow. Ubiqui- this is what ubiquitous means. It's everywhere. That's what the word ubiquitous means. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. It's, it permeates everything. It's ubiquitous. It's all over the place. So you can impress your friends tomorrow by saying it. it's ubiquitous. <laughs> what were you going to say, Brett? I
2: was going to say, can't you also say...
0: Sure. But, but
2: from a technology standpoint,
0: it could happen oh, yeah. immediately today. Oh yeah. Yeah. A lot faster pace. Right. Okay. So I talked about genre. We'll talk about this again. So what type of genre, if you don't like the word genre, what type of literature? What what how do you read Revelation? There's three there's three different ways to read it. It's I mean it's, there's three there's three different categorizations of what it is. Number one, it is an apocalypse. That very first Greek word is apocalypsis, which means a revelation and uncovering. So it is a a visual book of images that John is able to see. John's often going to say, I turned and I saw. I saw a vision. I saw an image. I saw this. It's it's an unveiling. It's It's a vision. Okay? So it's things that John sees. Number two it's prophetic in the sense that it talks about the future. Now, look at verse 3, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written for the time is near. Blessed are those who read aloud the words of what? This prophecy. So it's not only an apocalypse, it's not only an uncovering, it's not only a book of visions, it's a book of prophecy that tells the future. Now, here's something that you should do, an exercise for you. What what does John say is a blessed? Blessed are those who read what? Out loud. It will probably take you 45 minutes to read the book of Revelation out loud. So try that this week. In the shower, not <laughs> sometime when you're alone, read the book of Revelation out loud at one setting and just take it in and listen to it from your own mouth. Okay. But we also know not only is it an apocalypse, a book of visions, not only is it prophetic, but interestingly enough, it's also a letter. And thus, there was an occasion for why it was written. John wrote it to seven churches in Asia Minor. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is to come. That sounds like Paul, right? When his letters, grace to you and peace from my brother Timothy, we're writing to you, the church of Galatia, the church of Ephesus. So it's a letter too. So it's a, it's a letter to a group of churches about visions that John has seen about the future But since it's a letter to specific churches, it's also addressing issues in those churches, those seven churches. Okay? So, here's the big interpretation issue that we must hold fast to. The revelation cannot mean something different to us than what it meant to the original readers. That will help you because you have to stop and think. When people start coming up with these weird and wacky interpretations of Revelation, stop and ask yourself, would this make sense to a person in Turkey in the first century in 1895 reading this for the very first time? Now, does it mean that they didn't quite fully understand or John didn't fully understand all the imagery and that there are some future things? Yes, but again, it all comes back to that Old Testament motif. Okay. So you guys ready to start? That's introduction. Amen. Yeah. You lost me on this one. Can you expand
2: on this? I, I, I'm confused because back then, like you said, they didn't have technology, so they couldn't understand some of the things that could possibly be shown today back then. Back then. So wouldn't they interpret things different back then that we wouldn't...
0: No, because there's one meaning. There's a fixed meaning. There's one interpretive meaning. It doesn't change over time. So, okay, so let me give you an example. When the, when you go to, let me give you an example here. Okay, we're going we're to, real fast forward, real fast, to answer your question. So, go to chapter uh, Okay, let's go. Chapter 13, okay. I'm trying to find what I'm looking for here. Um, You kind of got me. Um, There is a passage in there where there, when um, the... The the uh, are let out of the pit, and they had their faces look like humans, and their hair's all wacky. I can't remember what chapter it's in. Okay, so a first century person would look at locusts coming out of a pit, and they would immediately think Old Testament locusts are used as God's judgment to eat up crops, and so. They're thinking, okay, Old Testament locusts. Some people will say what John saw were Huey helicopters with blades coming that you know, with atomic bombs coming out of them. And he didn't, the only way he knew how to explain it was talking about locusts. Now, could that could those be helicopters? Maybe. But probably a better interpretation would be what was a locust and what did it symbolize according to the Old Testament and what's the general principle behind what this purpose is? Does, does that make more sense to you? It does. Okay. Yeah, and I'm not exactly, somebody can find that chapter. It's where the, um, it, it's 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 one of the plagues where the, the locusts are, they're basically demonic, they're basically demonic beings. Is it chapter 15? Where they're led out to, um, Seven to angels plagues. chapter 15 you're saying? Um, no, I think it's, I think it's, well, I can't find it. It, Basically, they're sent out to um, torment people on the earth mentally, to bring, like, demonic torment on people. Um, I'd have to go back and find it, but I I can't find it right now. Maybe it's in chapter 7, 8. Oh, yeah, it's in chapter 9. Yeah, chapter 9, where they came out, like, um, if you look at chapter 9, verse 7, in the chapter 9, verse 7, in appearance, the locusts were like were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplate like breastplates of iron, and the noises of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. Okay, so that... Looks pretty demonic and pretty powerful. Now, that could look like a helicopter, okay? But so, but you know, for the past 2,000 years, have people interpreted that as a helicopter or have they looked back the Old Testament and said, what were those symbolisms rooted in the Old Testament and what does that tell us? Does that make more sense, Brent? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's start the book. Let's talk about um, the salutation. In, we're getting to chapter, really verse 4. Um, John starts his, uh, his letter pretty much the same way most first century writers did. Uh, grace and peace to him who was and is and is to come from the seven spirits are before his throne. Um, grace and peace. Um, we're going to look at Galatians chapter 6 on Sunday, and that's how Paul ends his letter, grace and peace. Peace. And let's just stop and ask the question why would John start by issuing grace and peace to these seven churches? We haven't gotten there yet, but those of you that were here last spring and we looked at the seven churches, what were they going through? They were going through an experience of intense persecution. They were going through periods of trials. There was sexual immorality. These churches were going through a lot of issues. And so the first thing John wants them to hear is, you need grace from the Lord Jesus Christ, and you need peace. So think about it for a moment. It I want, kind of a word of it's a word of encouragement. Think about who's writing this to who? John was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he's writing to the first church. So think about this, guys. Let's say things have gone really south in America, and I'm in prison as your pastor. And this building is vacated because it's illegal to meet in church. So you're meeting in homes. We're still meeting as Emmanuel Baptist Church, but you guys are underground. And I can't stand up and preach to you anymore, but I'm still your pastor. How am I going to communicate to you? I may have to write you a letter from prison to encourage you to stay fast, to hold true to the gospel, to be comforted in the midst of the tribulation that we're going through. So think about John doing that. He's writing back to these churches that are going through a hard time. And as a pastor, the first words he wants to hear, his church to hear is, you need grace and peace, these words of encouragement. And here's how he starts. He starts with the Trinity. He starts with the Trinity. The triune God is our source of grace and peace in the midst of struggles and hard times. Grace and peace to you, grace and peace from Him who was and who is and who is to come. What person of the Trinity is that? That is the Father. God the Father is the one who is and who was and who is to come. Now, when God the Father, Yahweh, showed up to Moses at the burning bush, what did he say his name was? I am. The one who is, who was, and who is to come. Now, do you notice that John got the the grammar wrong there? He got his tenses wrong, didn't he? He got the chronology backwards. What do you normally start with? The one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Past, present, future. How does he start? Present, past, future. Why does he start with God being in the present? What, are they, what does he want them to know? God is present. He is present here, now, in your midst. Not only was He the God that showed up to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David, and not only is He the God of the Old Testament, and not only is He the God who's going to bring future to an end, but you may not care about the past and you really may not care about the future. You just care about right now. God is in the midst of your situation. He is the great I Am. So He is... And who was and who is to come. Now, come to do what? He's come to bring judgment. When God comes, it's going to be judgment. So, it's great encouragement for these Christians and for us to hear that the Father, the great I am, has always been. He's with us right now, and He's going to come and bring all things and make all things right. So, you got the Father. Okay, then he shifts to the Holy Spirit. Now, John, you're getting out of order here. What's our order for the Trinity? The Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You're getting out of order. Who is, who was. John, why are you messing with the order? Well, there's a purpose for it. I'll tell you that in just a moment. Second, he gives you the Holy Spirit. Now, you say, I don't see that there. The seven spirits who are before his throne. Seven spirits. I thought there was a like the three and one. I didn't believe. I didn't, what's the seven spirits business? Okay, remember numbers are symbolic in apocalyptic literature. What does seven represent? Okay, so we're gonna I'm gonna have to start teaching you guys some numbers as we go through because numbers mean a lot in the Book of Revelation. You probably know this. The number seven represents completeness, fullness, perfection. So when he says it is the seven spirits of God. It's not, we don't take this literalistically, do we? Are they seven literal Holy Spirits? Or is this a symbolic way of saying the Holy Spirit is perfectly, completely the Holy Spirit? Now, Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, John's going to give you commentary. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. and Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Okay. So is the Holy Spirit seven torches of fire or is he seven spirits? Yes. Is he literally a seven torch? Is he literally seven spirits? No. What does the torch represent? What does the number 7 represent? Okay? What does a torch do? What does a lamp do? Okay, so if the Holy Spirit is likened to a lamp or a torch, or a spirit? What did I say? Where do, you, where do you get this symbolism? Where do we have to go back to? If we're going to figure out what the seven spirits of God, where do we have to go back to? Old Testament. Okay. So we're not, we're not in the dark. Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. You'll read this and be like, okay. Now I know kind of the symbolism that John is using. He's borrowing from the book of Zechariah. So Zechariah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. He said to me, what do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps which are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Okay, so what does he see here? Seven lampstands. They give off what? Does a lamp give off light? How's it getting its light? There's two olive trees. So what does olive oil do? It's like an igniter. The olive oil is giving the fuel to light the seven candles. And I said, "Whoops, go back here." And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? What, what is this vision? Then the angel who talked to me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord desirable, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So, how does the Old Testament interpret these seven lampstands in this olive tree? What does the angel say this is? It is the power of the Holy Spirit. The burning lamps, the burning torches represent the Holy Spirit. And the reason it's seven is because it's perfect. What holds the lamps? The lampstands. Later we'll find out that the church is represented as a lampstand. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the source of power for the church. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. Let's talk Trinity for a moment. If we are Trinitarian Christians who believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit, what has John just told us about the Father? He is the great I Am that's ever present in our problems. What has he just told us about the Holy Spirit? He is our source of power and light and strength. Now, who's the third person of the Trinity in the order here? Jesus, the Son. And again, John has gone out of order. Jesus is last. It's a bit odd. Usually it's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why the Holy Spirit second? And Jesus last. Because the whole focus of the book of Revelation is on Jesus as the Lamb of God, and the one who is going to come back in power and glory. So, John is fond of the number three and seven. The entire greeting is in groupings of three. What's the first three we've seen? Father, Spirit, Son, the Trinity, three. Okay, next... He talks about the person of Jesus, and we're going to see three descriptions of Jesus, okay? So, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, number one, the faithful witness, number two, the firstborn of the dead, number three, the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's who Jesus is. And then there's going to be a pairing of three on the work of Christ, to Him who, number one, loves us, to number two, who has freed us, from our sins by his blood, and number three, made us a kingdom priest to his God a kingdom priest to his God and Father. So three, three, three. Father, Spirit, Son, Jesus', and then three descriptions of who he is, and then three descriptions of what he has done. So let's look at the threefold description of the Son, who he is. Verse five. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. The faithful witness.
1: Seemed like a put down. To be called a, fa- More than just a faithful. Witness.
0: Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Yeah, and and, and actually I skipped myself for a moment. Let's go back to the the end of verse 4. Who are before His throne. Okay, the throne. This is out of Psalm 89 where Jesus is on His throne as the promised Son of David. Psalm 89, 34-37, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. So there's a link between the throne and the faithful witness now in this psalm who's the faithful witness <clears throat> go back and look at that psalm who's the faithful witness that's bearing witness to the enduring kingdom the moon the moon okay let me ask you a question about the moon how steady is the moon and bearing witness does the moon ever stop its orbit? I miss mean, moons not orbiting, but okay. I don't want to say the moon comes up. Does the moon ever not do its job? It's steady, right? The moon's always out. Perfect, synchronous orbit. Yes, always doing that. And so if the moon is always perfectly synchronously giving witness, to the throne jesus is the faithful witness now you need to understand what the word witness is in the original language this book of revelation is about being a witness for christ in the face of a dying in the face of dying for christ the word witness is where we get our word she should have had that i highlighted that for you but it's not in your notes um We get our word martyr from the word witness. Same word in Greek. The Greek word for witness is martos, which means to bear, the word means to bear witness ultimately to the point of death in some cases. That's why we get our word martyr from it, a person who bore witness. Now, why is Jesus the faithful witness? Let me just ask you a question. What did Jesus, while He was on earth, perfectly do? He died for our sins, so He's yeah. the perfect martyr. Yeah, he was the perfect martyr, and He always did the will of His Father. He always pointed to the glory of the Father. Jesus Himself, to the point that He died, was a faithful witness to His Father, even to the point of death. So Jesus is the ultimate martyr in the sense that he died on the cross for our sins and bore witness to the glory of God all the way to the end. Now, the next word is interesting because cults have used this to come up with their cultic world, their cultic religions. He's the firstborn of the dead. Okay, now, firstborn. If you don't know Greek and you're just looking at that from an English perspective, what would you may think that word means? Okay, when I say Aiden is my firstborn son, does he have rights and privileges that other sons don't have because he's firstborn? Okay, In that culture, the firstborn son had rights and privileges that other sons didn't have. What cults will say is, ah, firstborn, that must mean Jesus was the first created being. Like Jehovah's Witnesses and others that believe Jesus was created. No, that's not what the word means there. This means, it's the prototokos is the word there. It doesn't mean first created, but it means having a special position of honor in the Father's house where Jesus has the right to rule and reign. When it says He's the firstborn of the dead, it means that by virtue of His resurrection from the dead, He has ultimate power and authority to rule and reign as like a firstborn son of the King. And Psalm 89, again, is a prophecy about Jesus. Psalm eighty-nine twenty-seven: "...I will make Him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth." So Jesus is the ultimate faithful witness. He is ultimately the resurrected one. So he's the the crucified martyr. He's the resurrected king. And then what's the last thing there? the The third of the triad? He is the ruler of kings on earth. It's very, very important to talk about Jesus being the ruler of the kings on earth. Who is the king on earth right now as John is writing this to his audience? Well, who's the literal king on earth? Domitian, the emperor. And what is the emperor saying? You got to call me Lord and God. And, And John says, now, wait a minute. No matter who the highest man is in power, he is nothing compared to the ultimate king over all the kings of the earth. Caesar may be your lord on earth, as you're under the oppression of Roman of Roman um, military, excuse me, military might, but Jesus is the ultimate ruler. So John wants to paint a picture for his readers of number one, God the Father is with you, the Holy Spirit is perfectly your source of power, and Jesus is the crucified and resurrected King who's sovereign over all things. Before I start talking about prophecies and and end times visions and all these things, I want you to get your bearings straight, readers of Revelation, to know who it is that you worship. Who it is that's in control. Who it is that's sovereignly in charge of this world that you live in. Because right now, readers of, of Revelation, early church, eighty, ninety-five, 95, it may seem like the Roman Empire is the king. It may seem like persecution is the king. It may seem like all these things are crashing down in front of you. I just want to remind you, Jesus is on His throne and He's ruling. God is here. He's with you. And the Holy Spirit's going to give you power. Now, do you need to hear that today? I need to hear that. When, you're, when you struggle with life, what you don't want to be told, well, you just got to do better. Just be more faithful. Just be better. Just be a better Christian. Sometimes that's helpful, but what really helps me is God is with me. The Holy Spirit's given me power and Jesus is sovereign and he's king. Yes, Cindy. And you can see you can worship. That's going to lead to worship. Ultimate worship. So that's... Okay, so Trinity... Father, Spirit, Son, that's the first triad. Second triad, who Jesus is, He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Okay, second threefold description, this is what Jesus has done. Not so much who He is in His person, but what He has done or what He's doing, the accomplishments. And again, these are in threes. At the end of verse 5, Or the middle of verse 5 there. To him who loves us. Do you notice the tense the verb's in? Does it say loves or loved? Does yours say loves or loved? Oh, some of yours have past tense? Really? Okay. In In the original language, it's actually in the present tense that He's continually, constantly loving us. Now, does it make that much difference whether Jesus loved us or He loves us? It doesn't really matter. He loved us ultimately on the cross, but I think John is using the present tense to show us in the midst of your persecution, Jesus is loving you right now. Yes, He loved you when He died on the cross for you. Yes, He loved you when He saved you, but don't forget He's loving you right now. Now, Whenever you doubt God's love for you, whenever you question if God loves you, where do you need to look? Just look at the cross. And that's where God proved His love for us. Okay, now number two. This is past tense. He has what? Freed us or liberated us from our sins by His what? Blood. He's freed us by His blood. One of the things that John does is quote heavily from the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, there are over 500 Old Testament references in the book of Revelation. Let me give you another interpretive issue, and I'm going to give you a little preview. Revelation is the second and more comprehensive exodus. The Sunday after church in the park, on Sunday mornings, and you guys are the first to hear this, we will be going through the book of Exodus as a church family. It will nicely parallel what we're going through on Wednesday nights in Revelation because the Revelation is the fuller and second and more complete Exodus. What is Exodus all about? A people in slavery... That are liberated by the blood of a Passover lamb to go into the promised land. But before they go into the promised land, what do they have to do? Go through the the wilderness. Okay? So when John says we have been freed from our sins by his blood, that is Passover imagery of the blood of a lamb being slain for us. It's the whole idea of Jesus dying on the cross, shedding His blood. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It's very, very important that we as believers talk about the blood of Christ why why is our religion quote-unquote so bloody why do people to, in today's culture not like okay so 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 here you'll hear this twice because i'm probably going to say it again on sunday morning when you talk about Jesus being a moral example and a good teacher who improves your life, that's not offensive to anybody. But when you say you're a sinner under God's wrath and you need the sacrifice of Jesus to die in your place or you go to hell, that's offensive, is it not? Because what does it tell people? You're helpless, you need a Savior, and the only one that you can get that Savior is through the blood of Jesus Christ and He had to die on the cross for your sin. People don't like to hear about the blood. They don't like to hear about the cross. It's offensive to them. They don't like to hear about the blood of the cross. Well, the other religions are works. Exactly. You want you want to expand on that or just is the other other religions are work. Yeah. There's only yeah, it's either a, it's either self-help do something to get God to love you or trust in what Jesus alone accomplished for you through his death on the cross. Yes. And
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. The apostles were not ashamed to talk about the blood of Jesus. I mean, all through. I mean, we're, when we get to chapters four and five, especially chapter five, it's bloody because it talks about Jesus being the slaughtered lamb, the lamb who was slaughtered, back to that Passover imagery. Okay, so Jesus. Loves us. He gave himself and freed us by his blood. And then verse 6, number 3, what did he do? He made us a kingdom of priests to his God and his Father. Now, this is Old Testament imagery big time. After the Passover, when the children of Israel fled and were safe at the crossing of the Red Sea, one of the first things God does after He saves them is He sets them apart. Exodus 19, 4-6 is probably one of the most paradigmatic or the paradigms for, for all, of, all of Israel. Exodus 19, 4-6, here's God's pattern. You want to know God's pattern? Exodus is the prototype for God's pattern of how He deals with things. Okay, you got a people who are in bondage, You got salvation by blood, and then you've got the people set apart for mission and worship. Okay? Who's in bondage in Israel? I mean, who's in bondage in Egypt? Israel. They're in bondage. What does God do? He saves them by the blood of the Passover lamb. What does He do after He gets them through the Red Sea? He sets them apart for mission and for worship. What does God do with us? Were we in spiritual bondage at one time? Yes. We were all enslaved to our sin. We were in spiritual bondage. How did Jesus save us? He saved us by the blood. He's the Lamb of God who takes away our sins. And what does God set us apart for as His people? Mission and worship. Our mission is to make disciples of all nations and we are to glorify God in doing so. So, What does God say to the nation of Israel in Exodus 19, 4 through 6? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. What did he do to the Egyptians? (laughs) Dunked them in the... They experienced a really bad baptism. They didn't come back up. Okay. Uh, How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is not in your notes. I keep going off script here, but two things Israel was called to be. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, let's just talk about that for a moment. And that's what, what, what does the book of Revelation there say that God has set us, or Jesus has set us apart to be? Go back and look there. He's made us a kingdom of priests. Okay, so we're a kingdom of priests, and we're a holy nation. So let me ask you a question. In the old, Let's just talk about Old Testament here. In the Old Testament, what was the role of the priests? What did the priests do? What was their job? Their job was to do the sacrifices. So they were in charge of the sacrificial system. They would kill the bulls. They would pill, kill the goats. They would do the Day of Atonement. They would do all the blood sacrifices. They would, they would keep the tabernacle, the temple, the Ark of the covenant, all that stuff. The, the priests, they were the ones who... Let the nation understand that they needed a blood atonement to cover their sins. It was a reminder all the time, every year. That was what the priest did. Okay? What's a holy nation? What did God give the nation? How are they to be holy? Well, He gave them the Ten Commandments. He he gave them His law. So, He gave them the law... Ultimately, for us, written in our hearts, so that we would be, what? Distinct and holy from the world. So, for the nation of Israel, they were to be holy, they were to be separate, distinct, and they were a kingdom of priests, not just the priests, but all of them. So, if this applies to us today, we... Are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, what does that mean for us as God's people? We always set forth the importance of a blood atonement to cover sins through Jesus Christ, the once and for all, and we're to live as a people distinct and holy from the world. Now, let me prove this to you that this is not just something I made up. Let's go to First Timothy, I mean, sorry, let's go to First Peter 2:9. Peter is writing to Gentiles in Asia Minor, and notice what Peter says to us New Testament believers. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. So what are we? We are these people. What does Revelation say? God, in verse 6, God has made us a kingdom kingdom priest to his God and to his Father. So we are this holy nation, a kingdom of priests, God's people set apart to be worshipers on mission for him. Now this would have been great news for the struggling congregation because Think about your identity for a moment. If you're a struggling church in Asia Minor in 1895 with Domitian as your emperor and you're struggling with persecution and you hear these words, you're a kingdom of priests. God is with you. Jesus is your sovereign. He has redeemed you by His blood. Doesn't matter how much flack you get from the government, how much false doctrine comes into the church, how much pressure comes. You are God's unique people that He has saved and He's going to sustain you. Now, what does this view of the triune God, Father, Spirit, Son, do to John? Look at the end of verse 6. It leads to worship. To Him be glory and dominion, forever and ever. Amen. So let me just ask you a question. What does John want us to experience before we go any further in the book of Revelation? He wants us to worship. He wants us to fall on our faces to this great God and be like John and say, He deserves all glory and honor and dominion. This is the God we serve. This is our God. This is our great God. So no matter what comes against us, no matter what the church goes through, no matter what type of persecution, all these different things that come to us, we have a sovereign God who loves us, who's in control, who gives us the power through the Holy Spirit, who gives us the victory through Jesus. We can withstand whatever Satan brings to us. This is John preaching to the church, the seven churches before, yeah, because you're going to get to before, before, before yeah. And as you actually, as, you, as a matter of fact, when you get down to verse 10, that's when he starts getting his vision. Right. So this is not necessarily a vision yet. This is John as pastor in the penal colony in Patmos Writing back to these churches saying, You need to have this big vision of God to sustain you. And it all starts with worship. And I'm doing this to encourage you to, 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 to get your heart motivated to worship. So, yeah, he's kind of preaching to them. Yeah. Does, that, does that make sense? Okay, Brent, I thought you had a question back there. Yeah, I mean, he knew us before the foundation of the world right. and, and set his affection upon us and, and saved us right. out, out of his... Yeah. Now, let's, let's, let's get to verse 7 because John just kind of, okay, I mean, we're, we're wrapped up in worship. And then verse 7, he just kind of like, okay, I'm going to switch gears here. Behold. What does behold mean? Behold. behold. <laughs> Pay attention. Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. Okay? I just want to remind you, church, John's saying, he's coming back on the clouds and every eye will see Him. What does Jesus say in Matthew 24, 30-31? Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Does that sound familiar there? And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory, and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather His elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. He's going to come back on the clouds. All the tribes will see Him, and they will wail. And then in Acts chapter 1, 9 through 9-11, when they had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, that's Jesus, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, obviously angels, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. But what specifically does John emphasize right here about the events surrounding the second coming of Christ? Well, he says the visible coming. It's going to be visible. What does he say? Every every eye will see him, meaning this will be universal. I don't think this is a secret event, but it's an event where Everybody's gonna receive the return of Christ on the clouds. It says every eye will see him. Even those who what? Pierced him. Now, obviously, there's only a few, there's only a few select people who literally pierced Jesus. I mean, is, that, is he just talking about the Roman soldiers who pierced Jesus, who put the nails in his hand, who, who put the, the sword and the spear in his side? Is he just talking about just them, just those guys are going to see Jesus? I think it's metaphorically talking about anybody who has scoffed or mocked or rejected Jesus is going to see him. Now look at 2 Peter 3, 3-4. through Knowing this first of all, that scoffers scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires they will say where's the promise of his coming forever since the fathers fell asleep all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation where's this jesus he's not coming back but what's the reaction john let me just stop right here john does not mince words and there's no middle ground in john you're either saved or you're lost. You're either going to heaven or hell. It's like there's, there's no playing around with John. It's like cut and dry. Look at what John says. All the tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. Literally, this means to beat their breasts in fear of terrible judgment. Every single person who sees Jesus Christ come back will know It's too late. And that's why they're going to mourn. Because they had their chance. And now it's the end. Now, let me just give you an issue of interpretation here. Revelation, I said, is a book of repeated events like cyclical events, different camera angles. In other words, I believe the book is not linear but shows different snapshots of the same events just from different angles. So we see this event retold or recaptured. So right here, what are you seeing? Right from the very beginning, what does he mention? So if this is linear, then we should stop Revelation right there, right? He's come back. Everybody's seen him. Everybody's wailing. It's the end, right? Fold up and let's move on. Okay, Chapter 6 verses 15 and 16 you see it told again but maybe in an expanded version of it then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand that's the same that's the same way of sailing that they mourned and they wail but it's more what Expansive, it's, it's more descriptive. What is the wrath of God? It's not some out of control, capricious anger like Zeus throwing lightning bolts because he had a bad hair day. The wrath of God is because He is absolutely holy, He intensely hates sin. Now, We may not like God's wrath. We may not like God being a God of justice. But God coming back or Jesus coming back in judgment means that there will be wrath on that day. And and Revelation is very clear about that. Now, here's a hard question. It's a theological question I'll make you think about. Do sinners go to hell because they reject Jesus, or do sinners go to hell because of their personal sin? Okay. The answer is, let me give you the answer. People go to hell because of sin. Now, I'm not going to go on this rabbit trail, but I'm just going to make you think about it. There are people who have never heard the name of Jesus and never had an opportunity to reject Him. So if they've never rejected Him, are they going to go to heaven? No, because they are still sinners. Okay? So anyway, that's just something to think about. The point is is that all the earth is going to wail. Now, all the tribes on the earth. Let me give you another interpretation here. Never in the book of Revelation are Christians called those who dwell on the earth. There's a a code name that John uses all throughout the book of Revelation, those who dwell on the earth, earth dwellers. It's code word for lost people, non-Christians, those who've made their home on earth, those who are comfortable in this world system, those whose citizenship is not in heaven. They are those who dwell on the earth. That's just John's symbolic way of saying lost people. So when it says, everyone, all the tribes of the earth will wail... Christians, we're not going to wail when Jesus comes back. Because what does John say? Even so. um, This is kind of like if you watch basketball and Marv Albert, when he goes, yes. Okay. It's, it's, It's a Greek word for yes, even so. And then amen. It's a Hebrew. So Greek, even so is Greek. Amen is Hebrew. So. John's using a Greek expression and a Hebrew expression to, to both expressions to say, let it be so. There's one thing that John will not budge on. I, I talked about this. When it comes to Jesus, there's no room for universalism. What, what, what is universalism? Universal is this, this nice idea that everybody will eventually go to heaven. There's a sense of hope in the fact that God is just and will bring judgment against sin. So John does not have much of a problem with God coming back in judgment because he knows God is just and will do what God is called to do or you know, what God is ordained to do. Now, verse 8, this is where we're going to finish tonight. Now, this is Jesus speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, okay, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, so Jesus is identifying himself. He's speaking. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the the beginning letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter of the alphabet. He's the beginning and the end. The scripture establishes the absolute deity and eternality of Jesus. I also want to tell you something. When we went through the Gospel of John, if you remember that, Jesus had seven I am statements. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the true vine. I am, I am, I am. Okay. What did God say to Abraham, I mean, what did God say to Moses at the burning bush? I am. What does Jesus say here? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, Jesus the Almighty. The word Almighty there literally means the one who has in his hand everything. Jesus is sovereign over everything. Not just a little bit sovereign. I, I get in these conversations with people sometimes on Facebook that don't want God to be sovereign. God is sovereign, but he limits his sovereignty because he wants us to, I don't know. So let me ask you a question. Is God absolutely sovereign or is he a little bit sovereign? Okay. Do you want a God who's not absolutely sovereign? Or do you want a God who is in control of all things and and has the whole world in his hands? We sing the song. He's got the whole world, literally, in his hands. Okay. Now, John borrows heavily again from the Old Testament. In Daniel, we see the authority and absolute power given to Jesus. This, Daniel gives a prophecy of Jesus. In Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, okay, clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is Old Testament, Remember Daniel seeing this. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the one who was like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So even Daniel himself saw Jesus coming before the Father after his resurrection being endowed with all power, authority, and might. And Daniel described that in the book of Daniel. Now, what relevance is this to us? Our expectation of the coming Christ. The second coming of Christ should give us hope in a cruel world. Hope to persevere. Hope to press on. The power to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus' (laughs) The second coming of Christ is what the Bible calls our blessed hope. Titus 2, 13 and 14. For the Christian, waiting for our blessed hope. What's our blessed hope? What are we we hoping for? What are we waiting for? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself for his people, for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So when we think about the second coming, it's nothing to be scared about. If you're a believer in Jesus, it's everything to hope for as the blessed hope because it means that Jesus is coming back. You will see Him as He is. You'll see Him face to face. He will bring us to Himself and ultimately we will be in His presence forever. Now for the earth dwellers, those on the earth that don't have Christ, it's a time of mourning and wailing and weeping. So that's how Revelation starts, before John even gets his vision of the future. And we've got four minutes left for questions, comments, or snide remarks. So I'll take the first two, and not the last. Yeah.
1: A circular, circular,
0: cyclical, yeah, circular or cyclical.
1: Another conversation I had with somebody. Mm -hmm. It's kinda like, wow, it makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. Everything falls apart and the earth is destroyed, then all of a sudden here comes this angel and he says
0: we're gonna do this and this and this. Yeah. It's like I thought we'd we'd already destroyed the earth. Yeah, yeah. It's like I thought in chapter six we already destroyed the earth, why is it gonna happen again? So it's it's the same event told from different camera angles and it's and it's um, intensified. As you look at the different seven, like the seven bowls, the seven, as they get to the last of the seven, it's highly intensified. Because you got like a fourth of the earth, then you got a third of the earth, then you got a half of the earth, and then at the end you got the whole.
1: it probably help if John would have said, in the meantime.
0: Yeah, yeah. That yeah, could be good. Anybody else got a question or a comment? Well, I apologize for the people on Facebook. They're probably really upset well let's pray and if you guys have any questions you can come up afterwards and and talk to me and we'll we'll go from there and then so next week uh, we'll just keep trekking through revelation so try to read it out loud in one sitting and just see see how it impacts you so all right, let's pray father um, father I do thank you that you are the God who is uh, we look at the scriptures and know that you got you are the God who was and we we know that you are the god who is to come but John reminds us you're the God who is, that you're in the midst of our struggles, you're in the midst of our problems, you you know us intimately. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're our source of power, that you are our source of strength. And Jesus, I thank you that you are the Lamb of God that was slain, that you redeemed us, that you've made us a people, uh, that you have bought us by your blood, that you rule and you reign, that you're coming back. Lord, help us as we think about your second coming to wait for it as our blessed hope, but Lord, also see the urgency for us to share the gospel with those that don't know You. Uh, Lord, it's a very scary thing to think about those on the earth that will wail and mourn. Uh, Lord, help us to share the gospel. Help us to be urgent. Help us to plead with people to turn from their sin and to have faith in You, Jesus. And we know that um, in all things You will be glorified because You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Help us to walk in Your ways. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.